following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Well, I'm sure you've been to the doctor's office. The doctor was concerned, very concerned, so he asked the nurse, Hey nurse, how's that little girl doing that swallowed the quarters? And the nurse replied, no change. You know, thank you. What kind of things, I, I, I heard the groan from the junior high staff, that's what I heard. Yeah. What kind of comments do you not want to hear when you're about to go into surgery? The number one comment you do not want to hear is, oops. All right, that's the first one. Second one, has anybody seen my watch? I can't find it. Or blast, page 47 of this manual's missing. That wouldn't be good. Or hey, take a picture from this angle because uh, this is truly a freak of nature. Or no, no, the power's gone off again. Or number six, everybody stand back now. Stand back, I lost my contact lens. Can't find it. Imagine for a moment though that you had that doctor's appointment and you receive difficult news. What happens today is everybody goes home, they go on the internet, they kind of find out everything about what they're trying to learn about, uh, what the doctor said. They talk to all their friends who you know, are doctors and talk to other people who know about doctors and think they know doctors. And so they get all this information. And if all your friends and all the internet is contradicting your doctor, then typically what you want to do is get a what? Second opinion. That's right. So the best kind of second opinion, though, is a doctor who then doesn't like your original doctor. Uh, the best kind of second opinion is a doctor that you visit now from UCLA because your doctor's from USC, and they don't like each other. That, and if they both agree on their prognosis, their diagnosis, then you've got a good second opinion, right? That's right. Well, interesting enough, that's exactly what you have in the Bible today. As you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, you're going to find a second opinion Peter's going to refer to another apostle, and that apostle is going to agree with Peter on these truths on the second coming of Christ. If you're new with us, we are working our way verse by verse, teaching what God's Word has to say in its intended meaning out of the text of 2 Peter. We're getting very close to our study. This is the 33rd sermon on 2 Peter. After Easter, we'll have the 34th and final sermon on this particular book, and we'll conclude this study. But interesting enough, the Apostle Peter is now appealing to another apostle. And this apostle is one that the churches that Peter writes know personally. In fact, it's one who has written to these same churches in the past, one who is inspired to record the Scripture as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and also, here's the best part, one who Peter has had a difficult time with in the past. They haven't exactly, you know, been in the Scripture, gotten along very well in the context of the Word of God, and so this makes it a very strong second opinion on the second coming of Christ. This apostle is not only going to completely affirm what Peter writes here about the second coming, but actually goes beyond what Peter writes and describes not merely the second coming judgment, but all the events of the day of the Lord, all the eschatological events that we know are coming, the rapture, the tribulation, 
of the second coming of Christ, the kingdom period, end of the eternal state. This apostle Paul writes all about that, and that's why Peter, in this letter, 2 Peter, refers to him. And though there was that past confrontation, these two apostles are one heart, they're one mind. They have been inspired by the Spirit of God to record the Scripture, and what they write in Scripture is exactly the same. It's exactly the same. And therefore, we can be thrilled that they're both telling you, our love, our passion, the person of Jesus Christ is coming again to rewrite this entire planet. Are you ready for that? He's going to do it. Well, interesting enough, uh, we walked through verses 11 through 15, and now today we're going to do 15 and forward. And so I want you to read aloud with me from your outline so we can read it together, starting in 15b. Here we go. Try it together. On your mark, get set. Just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Verse 16, everybody, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away from the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Now, what is Peter saying here? Well, we've already known, if you've been with us, that as we've been studying this last chapter, verses 1 through 10 are talking about the certainty of the second coming of Christ. Even no matter what the false teachers are saying, whatever they pontificate about, Peter's saying, no, it is certain. It is going to happen, and he's give you all those evidences of why it's going to happen. And now, in verses 11 through 18, he's going to tell you that basically, if we truly anticipate the second coming of Christ, if you can't wait for our Lord Jesus to come again physically to this planet, it's going to alter the way you live, and I live every single day. It's going to change the way we live. And he's been talking about that. He begins the second half with verse 11, and it is a massively powerful summary statement. It's not a question, it's a summary statement. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, this whole planet's going to be wiped out, the whole universe, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He literally is declaring, and I've tried to give you the literal rendering, it is how astonishingly excellent you ought to be. How astonishingly excellent. If all the world's going to be burned up, how should we dramatically live different? And he goes on to explain that. He's basically telling us that this world is not our home. Uh, in fact, you're to live different than this world. You're an alien. You're not of this world. This earth is just a temporary short-term VRBO. Okay? We're not here forever. Like a foreigner, you're going to live unique. And that's what the word holy means. It means unique or separate. And then he says in verse 11, godly, which means like Christ and God-pleasing. So you're going to live dramatically different. And he says, well, then explain that. What does that exactly look like? Well, verses 12 all the way to 18 then tell you exactly what it looks like, what this different lifestyle will be. And we learned uh, weeks back now that, number one, that you're going to live for eternity. You're going to live with an eternal perspective. Look at verses 12 and 13. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his what? 
His promise. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Looking there is an excited anticipation. He wants us excitedly anticipating the day of God. The day of God, we learned last time, is basically that the whole earth and the whole heavens are going to be melt, and there's going to be a brand new heaven and a brand new earth, and that's the day of God. The day of God. It's coming. It's going to be brand new. And when you know that everything you own, everything that's precious to you, Every possession that you have, every house, every car, anything that's worth anything to you is all going to burn. It should affect the way we live. Can I hear an amen to that? It should. That's what he's talking about here. In fact, this future, this new earth is going to be so awesome, you're going to live in righteous perfection. You see that word where righteousness dwells in verse 13? He's talking about that it's so mind-blowing, it's so perfect, you're not going to even care to remember this life. Now, you could remember this life. You just won't care to. And I want you to remember what he says in Isaiah 65, 17. Remember that verse. It says, Behold, Isaiah says, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be what? Remembered or even come to mind. It's going to be so good, friends. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It is so incredible that you won't even give this life a second thought. In fact, it's going to start to change not only your eternal perspective, it's going to change the way you deal with this life and the circumstances that you're all facing right now. Secondly, in your outline, you'll start living with a sweet internal peace. See what he says in verse 14? Do you see it there? He says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in what? Peace. I mean, this is a very unfair, chaotic, brutal, and sin-saturated world, right? And if you don't think that right now, just take a look at the news, okay? And it will bring you up to speed with just how bad things are. And this literally causes all kinds of people and the mass amount of world population to live in fear. People are generally today living in fear. And you've seen it manifested in multiple ways. But beloved believers, Peter says, can uniquely live saturated with peace. Even in the midst of the chaos, this peace will banish worry, destroy fear, and remove anxiety. And when you look for the soon return to end all evil, to terminate all injustice, to stop all foolishness, to finish all worldly temptations, believers will live more and more with the internal peace. As you live in holiness and godliness, what happens is your assurance of salvation begins to grow deep and your confidence in God's love, His control, and His wisdom over every circumstance and every event on this planet will increasingly change the way you think so you can live with internal peace. It's there. It's available. All you have to do is live in it. In fact, as you hope in Christ's return, you'll begin thirdly to live for Christ like purity. To live for Christ like purity. He ends verse 14 with the terms spotless and blameless. You see it there? Spotless and blameless. Spotless refers to Christian character. Blameless refers to Christian reputation. And he's basically saying the promise of Christ's return serves as a powerful motivation for all believers to live in Christ-like character and to live above reproach in reputation. You, you purposely pursue purity so you're ready for <laughs> your judgment for reward. 
you're ready to glorify God as you emulate the only pure one, the only holy one, to be continually ready for Christ to rapture you at any moment and to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel to others who are still enslaved to their sin. And that's why he brings up number four, living for faithful gospel proclamation. When you know that he's coming really soon, then those without Christ are in big trouble. Would you agree? They're in big trouble. And that's why you're not going to grow idle in ministry. You're not going to isolate yourself from lost people. But you'll pursue your spiritual responsibilities to share the gospel while you've got opportunity. Look what he says in verse 15. Look at it. And regard... Regard God's patience, the patience of our Lord, why He hasn't returned yet, the patience as what? Salvation, an opportunity for salvation. He commands us to regard His patience, this delay, as a charge for you to continue to share the gospel and plead with sinners to repent. God remains patient during a season of mercy, and you'll buy up every opportunity to explain the only way of salvation. Listen, the, old, the Lord is only delaying His return in order to save the remainder of the elect, which then creates for us a window, I like to call it a window of responsibility to proclaim the gospel. So we're going to be passionate about those who don't know Christ when we truly believe that He's coming at any moment. And then number five for today, new for you, as we're working our way through this text, is that ultimately, if you're anticipating His coming, you're going to live for doctrinal clarity. You're going to live for doctrinal clarity. In fact, in verses 15 to 16, Peter, he calls for a second opinion, and he's calling about the Apostle Paul on truth about all the eschatological events. And then he says in verse 17, take a look there, he commands the readers to guard against these false ideas that the false teachers are trying to perpetuate about salvation, and particularly about the second coming and all these end time events. So I want to give you a clear understanding of what Peter is saying here. I'm going to read it to you aloud in outline form. So take a look at your, uh, your basic your outline And there at the bottom of your outline there, you should see the cooperator, which is basically referring to verse 15, just as our beloved brother Paul. He's the cooperator. The calling is according to the wisdom given to him. The communication is that he wrote to you as also in all his letters, and he wrote to you about the coming, the coming of Christ. It says, speaking in them of these things, speaking about the second coming, which are sometimes, number one, difficult, in which are some things hard to understand, he says. And then they also sometimes, number two, get distorted, which the untaught and the unstable, what? What do they do? They distort them, which is deadly because they don't just distort the end times events as they do the rest of the scriptures. They manipulate the whole Bible. And because of that, number four, they're destroyed to their own destruction. What he wants you to be is to be the conscientious. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your what? Your guard to counteract the last point, number six, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Now, you got to love what Peter writes here, especially as he calls Paul as a witness to the stand to support the second coming of Christ. First in your outline, then the cooperator. That's Paul. Just as also our beloved brother Paul. Now this is a big deal. 
This isn't a small deal. We kind of read this stuff and we kind of kind of burp and go on, and it's really significant. Paul is affirmed by Peter as a beloved, very much loved brother in Christ. And, and Paul definitely excelled, in my view, beyond Peter in multiple ways. In multiple ways. I mean, Paul started more churches than Peter. Uh, New Testament-inspired letters were written by, more by Paul than Peter. Uh, more impactful in much larger Gentile world. Paul definitely wrote more about the end times than Peter. And even though Peter lived with Christ, and even though he saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, Paul took a visit to the third heaven and came back. I mean, that's amazing. And yet here, Peter esteems this mighty man of God, a fellow apostle, the Apostle Paul, and he uses him as a cooperator of truth about the second coming. You know, maybe the sweetest part of Peter using Paul, though, as a witness to support the second coming here, is the fact that at the beginning of the New Testament era, there's still some bigotry going on. There's still some difficulty with Jewish Christians accepting Gentile Christians, and Peter was still working through his own bigotries toward Gentile Christians when Paul confronted him on it. And in the very first epistle, probably, either that or James or Galatians, very close to the same time, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Take a look at that verse. Very early in church history, it says this. And, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, I, that's Paul, I, Paul, opposed him to his what? Face to face here. Because he stood, Peter stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, you say, what is that? Listen, there's a bunch of elite Christians who are a part of Judaism, who are in Jerusalem, and they're kind of picking up where the Jewish leadership took uh, left off, and they're significant, and they're key players, and all James and all the leadership from Jerusalem come down. And when they do, Peter began to withdraw, see it's there, and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision, the Jews. For the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. It was so powerful and so much peer pressure there that the result that even Barnabas, can you see that? Even Barnabas, Barnabas who loves everybody, Barnabas who accepts everybody, Barnabas whose names mean son of encouragement, Barnabas even was carried away by the hypocrisy. Man, talk about peer pressure. That was 20 years ago. 20 years ago to what Peter is now writing. And Peter was confronted by Paul when he wrongly refused to eat with the Gentile Christians just out of peer pressure. As the primary spokesman for the church, Peter must have been embarrassed. Would you agree with that? Sure. Peter was undoubtedly embarrassed by Paul's very public rebuke. That'd be very tough to bear. And nonetheless, Peter graciously accepted the rebuke. Peter repented of his sin. And Peter's respect for Paul was undiminished and proven here. In fact, regardless of the pointed confrontation, Peter here calls his confronter, verse 15, my very much loved, beloved brother Paul. Peter's saying, Paul and I are together on this. We're together on this. We believe the same. If you trust me, you could trust Paul. If you trust Paul, you could trust me. If you believe my writings, you could believe Paul's writings. And if you believe Paul's writings, you can believe my writings because they're apostolic, which means we're moved by the Holy Spirit to record the Scripture. And really, the centerpiece of all of that is that the Holy Spirit is the one who's writing. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, is giving us His Word. And that's why Paul had, secondly, in your outline, a unique calling, the calling. The next phrase says in verse 15 at the end of it, 
according to the wisdom given to him. Do you see that there? According to the wisdom given to him. That participle given, actually uh, in that next phrase, according to the wisdom given to him, that given is the wisdom, it's not Paul's, it's actually God's to Paul. Uh, the, the verse and the, the tense there tells you that God gave him this, and the, the word given is gift or present. It's a supernatural wisdom. Now, everybody knows what wisdom is, right? It's knowledge and experience combined with common sense and insight. Wisdom. And God's calling in Paul's life was to impart the wisdom of God about God's salvation, sovereignty, evangelism at the beginning of verse 15. But also, you can see that God's wisdom was given to Paul in order for him to clearly teach on many different aspects of all the end-time events, which you find at the end of verse 15, like the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, and the, the kingdom of Christ. The calling also made Paul not only a beloved brother, but a fellow apostle. Now, you understand this, right? Apostles were unique. You understand that there are no apostles today. Apostles are a part of the foundation of the church, Galatians 2.20. The church was built upon the foundation of the apostles. They were unique. They were not just representatives of Christ. They were not merely ambassadors of Christ. They were literally proxies of Christ. They had the exact same power and the exact same words of Jesus Christ. They were his proxies, specially chosen uniquely at the beginning of the church to lay the foundation. And this is a fellow apostle who was uniquely inspired as a writer of the scripture to teach these truths. That's what he did. Thirdly, in your outline, the communication. The communication. He wrote to you at the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16 and also in all his letters. He wrote to you more than once. More than once. Peter's appealing to Paul's inspired letters for support. He's appealing to the Bible. Now you get this. Old Testament written by the prophets of God. Uniquely set apart the prophets of God to record Scripture. Not everybody recorded Scripture, but the prophets of God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was the apostles of God and those under their authority. Those they influenced. It was always apostolic. That's why the early church recognized the 27 books that we have in our New Testament because they were written by or affirmed under the authority of an apostle. An apostle. Very important that you understand that. That's the kind of authority that they had. And Peter is referring to Paul's communication where he was inspired by the Spirit of God. It doesn't matter if it came from inspired Peter or inspired Paul. They're both apostles. Therefore, it's God's unified curriculum. It is God's Word. This reminds the Peter's churches that he's writing to to reject the false teachers. Did the, the false teachers teach God's word, yes or no? No. They taught their opinion. They taught their ideas. What the apostles did was give you God's living and active word of God. They told you what Jesus meant by what Jesus said. They gave you God's word. And Paul, more than any other New Testament writer, explains God's plan for humanity now and in the future. And so... Peter uses a general verb there. You see it there at the end of verse 15, wrote, he wrote to you. That's determining that this is a general endorsement of all of Paul's inspired writings. He doesn't refer to one specific letter, but everything that Paul wrote that was inspired had this divine origin, and it is God's revelation. And what Peter's saying here is, listen, churches, 
Paul, inspired by God, wrote the same things I wrote about the second coming of Christ. Look, you can trust me as I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is literally going to come. He's going to burn the entire universe. He's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. Everything I've taught you that I've given to you because it's apostolic. Understand, Paul taught the same thing. He taught the very same thing. That's the point. It seems obvious from this context. Peter sent his letter to some of the same churches that Peter's now writing. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Peter's been writing some churches in Asia, Asia Minor. And if you've ever heard, have you heard of the word Colossians? Anybody heard of that? Uh, have you heard of the, the, the letter called the Ephesian letter? Anybody heard of that? Anybody heard of the letter called the Galatian letter? Anybody heard of that? Listen, those are the same churches that Peter's writing right now. They've already been written to by the Apostle Paul. And so therefore, they know Paul and they know Peter. And therefore, they're responding to this as going, listen, they're both in agreement that Jesus Christ is physically going to come. Jesus Christ is physically going to revolutionize this entire world and we're all going to be a part of it who are his children. Amen to that? There we are. So the end times basically are going to happen exactly as we've talked about, and that's what he says, fourthly in your outline, the coming, the coming. Look at the second phrase in verse 16, speaking in them of these things. Now you're saying, sometimes you go, well, what does that mean, these things? Well, you might go back just a little bit to the end of verse 15 and say, well, he's talking about salvation, because he talks about that that's why Christ delays. But if you're looking at the entire context here and the point of Peter's argument is really He's talking about these things are the eschatological events that are going to occur. Are these eschatological events, the second coming of Christ, the judgment of mankind, that you're going to have to face the Lord Jesus Christ in a judgment for reward, but you're going to face him, are those all going to happen? The answer is yes, and he's saying Paul says the same thing as I do. Paul says it. Paul's affirmed that. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that Paul taught and wrote was immediately understood. Take a look. There are some truths which are, letter A, difficult. You see that there, difficult, letter A, says in verse 16, in which are some things hard to understand. How many, sometimes you read the Bible and it's hard to understand? Can I see your hand? Okay, when it comes to prophetic passages, sometimes it can even be more difficult to understand. But understand, Peter doesn't say impossible to understand. He says they're what? Difficult to understand. And especially under these prophecies. They're not impossible, they're just a little difficult. And that's why there is an additional difficulty to interpreting the rapture of the church or the Antichrist, who's the Antichrist, or the return of Christ in judgment, or the glories of heaven to follow, or the kingdom period. Simply, Peter's recognizing that some of your Bible, some written revelation, particularly from Paul, especially these prophetic passages, are more complex than others. Not impossible, just complex. And because Paul was so detailed about the end times and some of his teaching contained some difficult but not impossible passages to interpret, the false teachers purposely distorted them to make them say what they wanted. Okay, which leads us to letter B, distorted. Letter B, distorted. Look what he says again, verse 16, the next phrase, which the untaught and the unstable, what do they do? Distort. Listen. The original, simple, most obvious meaning of the text is being manipulated by the false teachers. They're basically not looking for the author's intended message. How many times will we remind you as a church 
Do not listen to what I say, but listen to what the God says. Listen to what God says in his word about the original meaning of the word. What did Peter mean by what Peter said in the context that we have here 2,000 years ago when he wrote this letter? Do you understand? That's the point. That's the point. And the false teachers were manipulating the word to make it say what they wanted. They were manipulating it to communicate not what God meant by what God said. They are untaught and unstable. You see those words? Untaught means they're ignorant. And unstable means that they have a faulty spiritual character. So they're ignorant and they're unscrupulous. And they're doing it for selfish means. They want to live what they want, the way they want to live. They want to live according to the flesh. They want to live in lust. And Paul's saying, no, you're going to be evaluated. You're going to be judged. And so, what do they do? Look what that word is. They distort the Bible. Write this down. This is for your junior hires, okay? They need to know this, but it's for you as well. The word distort literally means, this is how it was used, wrenching someone's body on a torture rack. Isn't that awesome? You got to picture it, right? They're taking someone, they're taking the word, and they're stretching it out on a torture rack, and they're twisting it and maligning it and whipping it to make it say what they want. That's the point. It vividly pictures how they manipulate certain prophetic passages and torture the word to confuse the weak Christian and to deceive the false Christian. And not only do they twist and torture the end times passages, the prophetic passages, but let us see they're deadly because verse 16 says, as they do the rest of the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures. The false teachers didn't stop with prophetic passages. If they're going to malign those, they're going to also malign the rest of the Bible, including key issues like the doctrine of salvation, how you can be right with God through Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone. They're going to mess with that. They're going to talk about malign sanctification, and they're going to malign everything about the end times. Everything. In fact, that Peter placed Paul's writings on par with the rest of scriptures. You see that there? He's basically saying Paul's writings are like the rest of scriptures. Clearly affirms that what Paul wrote was divinely inspired truth. And verse 16, it proves the inspiration of scripture where God used his chosen apostles to record his word. The word translated scriptures there, do you see it there? The rest of the scriptures, that's graphos, where we get the word to write, which occurs about 180 times in the New Testament. Half of those refer directly to the word. And then the noun, graphe, is used 50 times exclusively of Old Testament and New Testament scripture. What Peter's talking about is that book you have in your lap right now. Peter's talking about the word of God, the living word of God. What these false teachers want to do is put it on a rack of torture and manipulate it so they can do what they want and live how they want. Peter says, I want you to know that what Paul wrote was inspired scripture. Inspired scripture. God's word. The living word of God. I want you to know that. And plus, you learn from verse 16 that the New Testament apostles were aware that when they spoke and when they wrote when they were writing inspired by the Spirit of God, they knew they were writing inspired by the Spirit of God to write and record Scripture. In fact, how do I know that? Because Paul tells us so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Look at it. It says, For this reason we are constantly thanking God that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from who? You heard it from us. You accepted it not as the Word of who? Men, but for what it really is, the Word of... God, 
which also, I love this, performs its work in you who believe. The apostles knew when it was inspired. And never forget, beloved, the scriptures are the tool that God uses to bring about salvation. It is the tool. That, what does he say in Romans ten seventeen? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And it also is the tool, Christian, that God uses to sanctify you. What right? does he say in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Are you getting this? It is not emotional appeals, arguments, apologetics, games, uh, kindness. It is God's word that changes lives. Can I hear an amen? Next time you go to a church and the church is all about, are you ready? The pastor's vision. I want you to throw up, please. Because it is not about what a pastor wants or his vision. It's about what God says. It is not about what the elders determine. It is what God says. We are under the authority of the Word of God. The living Word of God given to us by the apostles of Jesus Christ. It has been preserved for us as an incredible miracle of God. And therefore we need to treat it as such. And because the Scripture is inspired and required for salvation and required for sanctification because only the Bible can rescue you off the path of hell to heaven, then it's absolutely essential that the Word of God not be distorted on the rack of torture. And this is exactly what the false teachers did to all the doctrines of the Bible. Therefore, letter D, they will be destroyed. They'll be destroyed. Verse 16, to their own destruction you see it there their own destruction by distorting the scriptures the false teachers were securing their own destruction and certifying the spiritual demise of everybody that listened to them what that says to us is that first god's going to destroy them and and he's not describing the fate of christians who have a hard time interpreting the word okay don't go there in other words he's not talking about difficult interpretation he's talking about false teachers who intentionally torture the word in order to support their false doctrines and their leading to their own destruction. That word destruction is used six times in this little letter of 2 Peter. Six times. In the King James Version, it's translated damnable, uh, pernicious, uh, perdition, as well as destruction. And it means the, basically, rejection of eternal life, which results in eternal what? Eternal death. Eternal death, forever death. There are very severe warnings, by the way, in God's word toward those who are loose and fast with the Bible, who manipulate the Bible, who torture the Bible. You're never to make it say what you want, only what God meant in its original context. Understand, destruction here, by the way, too, is not the termination of your life or existence. It's the termination of the quality of your eternal life from bliss to eternal torment. It's destruction. You know, when you're listening to someone and they're teaching the Bible and you're looking at your Bible and you're hearing them and you're going, man, I've never seen that there before. Do you know why? Because it probably isn't there. Do you understand? Listen, be warned. Those who torture the Scriptures now will be tortured for eternity. Most severely. Let not many of you become teachers because you shall occur a stricter judgment, James 3.1. False teachers were securing their own destruction as well as the spiritual ruin of their followers. Don't be one, but you be different. You should be, fifthly, the conscientious. Be the conscientious. Verse 17, look what he says. You, therefore, beloved, 
knowing this beforehand, you already know this. This is already established. You already have learned this from Paul. You've learned this from Peter. This is very clear. Be on your guard. Guard yourselves like it's a vicious and dangerous criminal. Be on guard. Now, here's where it's really interesting. They had heard Paul. They had heard Peter. They had read God's word from God's apostles. But knowledge alone was not enough. Peter adds in, not just know the truth that you've already heard beforehand, but I want you to guard against this. You know, it's very, very true in my life and in your life that sometimes a little bit of Bible knowledge can make us actually assume that we're above things. Are you with me on this? That we're not susceptible to things. And the warning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 should take seed in our lives. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he what? Fall. Understand, by twisting the scriptures, the false teachers were assuring their own destruction and leading those they taught to the same annihilation. And that's why Peter warns his beloved readers beforehand that they might be on their guard, like guarding that dangerous criminal against the error of such unprincipled men. It's not just knowledge, but you need to be watchful. Watchful. How? Well, sixthly in your outline, the counteract. Be the counteract. Verse 17, the second half, he says, so that. Here's the purpose. So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own what? Steadfastness. Wow. Along with Peter's command to guard believers must not allow themselves to be carried away by the lies of false teachers. Rather, they must be alert. We must be discerning lest we be led astray, carried away, led astray by error and fall from our own steadfastness. Unprincipled men are literally teachers who are morally corrupt. In this age, we're in trouble. Because in this age, right now that we live, we are almost commanded by our society to accept everyone. Do you understand that? Do you feel the pressure of that? Accept everyone. Peter's saying, don't accept everyone. Do not tolerate those who embrace error, who teach error, who live continually in error. Do not embrace them. Do not accept them. There's no communion between truth and error. Light and darkness. The false teachers live in error and Christians... We live in the sphere of truth. Do you understand that our Savior is truth? Do you understand that the Spirit of God who indwells you is the Spirit of truth? That the Word of God is truth? We live in truth, not error. Therefore, embrace and teach the truth and do not embrace those who teach error. True Christians cannot fall from salvation They cannot be lost if they're genuinely born again. We know that because of eternal security. But they can fall from their own steadfastness, according to this passage. Steadfastness means to, you've been on a trail sometime and you slipped. Remember that when you slipped? You lost your footing? That's exactly what steadfastness means. It means you don't lose your footing. In fact, it is the opposite of being stable. Peter's concern was not that his readers would lose their salvation, but they might slip from doctrinal stability and catch this, lose their confidence in God's truth. 
lose their confidence in God's word. Peter's concern, again, was that his readers and you would trust their Bible. And that you would have great confidence in your Bible. You know, the next time you're facing a trial or right now, are you standing on his word? The next time you have some sort of relational tension, are you searching his word? The next time your heart is not at peace, are you relying on the truths and the promises of Scripture? That's what he's saying to you practically in everyday life. Don't slip off that path. Stay on that path. Stay firm in the word. Stay firm. Don't be the make-believer who falls away. The make-believer. That can't be a real Christian. That's a make-believer. And he's talked about in 1 Timothy 4.1. What's it say? The Spirit explicitly says, then in latter times, some will, what? Fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. They, they were never saved in the first place, and so they walked away from Christ. We need to fight for truth. We need to fight for truth to be taught correctly. So take this home with me. Letter A, is the Bible your authority? Is the Bible your authority? We, we must strive for doctrinal clarity. In these verses, and again, we spent a lot of time on this in the first section of this book, and even in chapter 2, we need to make sure that Peter, again, is establishing God's word has authority over anything and everyone in your life. No one and nothing trumps the Bible. Nothing. Is the word of God your main reference to all decisions? Is the word of God, the Bible, what you use in determining your priorities and determining conflict and resolving your heart issues where you're not at peace with the Lord? Are the scriptures what you use even in, in your guide for practical everyday things like finances, even like parenting? Uh, I honestly believe that a lot of times Christian parents are, are winging it by what their parents did and what they've picked up along the way and really not actually parenting according to the scripture. According to what God's word on, on discipline, on consequences, on accepting responsibility, on truly discipling your kids and directing them as to what a man is and what a woman is and all the things that are before you in that parenting experience. Your only hope is for them to come under the authority of the word of God, that they would, like you, live the word of God, not perfectly but progressively, under its authority. You would pass that on to your children so the rest of their lives they would live under the authority of the word of God. That's parenting. That's the singular target, the bullseye of parenting. Are you living under the authority of the word? Letter B, don't harmonize truth with error. Don't harmonize truth with error. You say, I'd never do it. Well, it's, it's happening all around us. A six literal 24-hour consecutive day creation is being mixed with evolutionary truth now. A woman's role and men's role is being ignored, and the distinction between the sexes is being blurred today. Can't even talk about it. The details of the day of the Lord are being cooked into a soup that no one can understand. Singles are, are not supposed to be irresponsible, freewheeling. They're supposed to have undistracted devotion to Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 7. Marrieds are not called to tolerate each other, but to work and labor to be one in Christ. One heart, one mind. Christians don't merely attend church, but they're interconnected to the church family. Intertwined to the church family. Believers are not complainers, but those who rejoice always in everything. Give what? Thanks. God sovereignly is never an excuse to not pray and not serve and not give and not share the gospel. Do not mix truth with error. Be pure in your understanding of what the Bible has to say and stand firm in it. Letter C, be thankful for the word of God. Are you thankful for your Bible? Come on, can I hear an amen? 
you got to be thankful for your Bible. Listen, it is the Word of God. It is now, they had partial. They might have had, actually, Paul's, all of his epistles already, as Peter wrote this particular letter. They may have already been collated. They might already have had access to all of Paul's writings, but they still didn't have a completed canon. You have the completed canon. All of the New Testament epistles, all the Old Testament letters, you have all of them. You have a full Bible. His plan, the living word, you have it. Would you thank him for it? Would you say thank you this week? Would you turn to his truth for, to find comfort, wisdom, and direction? Would you thank Christ that the words that you read in the Bible are his very words? As if he were here, standing here physically right now, what would come out of his mouth would be this book. This is his word. These are his words. Thank the Lord for the scriptures that thousands of believers have died for. They were literally burned at the stake. Can you imagine that? Being burned alive because of the scripture. So the million dollar question is today is this. Are you ready? Are you reading it? It's his word to you. His love letter to you. Don't forsake his word. And letter D, remember his genuine children love his truth. Again, it's his truth that saves us. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It sanctifies us. Listen, if you don't love the truth, then the spirit who is called the spirit of truth is not in you. If he's not in you, you're not saved. Do you understand? That means you're not his child. If you love Christ, you'll love what he says. That's what John said in 1 John 4, 6. Look at it. We are from God and he who knows God, he who is a genuine Christian, he who is born again, listens to who? To us. He's saying to the apostles. He who is not from God does not listen to us, the apostles. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You will want to listen to. You'll want to follow. You'll want to obey God's word today. It may be that you find yourself, I don't love the truth. I don't even want to be here. And yet I know that I stand condemned before a holy God because my sin is going to condemn me forever. The only hope I have is to put my hope in Jesus Christ, to have my sin be punished on Him, and to have His righteousness cover me so I can be born again. And then to be regenerated by being dwelt with the Holy Spirit, having a new nature that actually that new heart would desire truth and would love the truth. Let's be people who love the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it always has something to say to us, to speak to us. And Father, any here who do not know you, who may not be your child, would you begin that process of drawing them to yourself so they might find salvation in your Son. And Father, for the rest of us, may we treasure your truth. May we use it for everything that we're going through right now. May we refer to it, and even if we don't know where we're going, we ask others to help us to know the passages that would speak to our issues. And Father, we'll give you glory. Thank you that you've preserved it for us, and thank you that we can enjoy that now. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.